John chapter 17 and verses 1 to 5. I'll read the text and then we'll pray. John chapter 17 beginning in verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before You this morning as a people who have the luxury of looking back and seeing the way that You fulfilled Your promises of old. Your people, Israel, were anticipating, were hoping and waiting for the coming Emmanuel. The sign of God that God was dwelling in the midst of His people. They were hoping for the coming of the promised King, the Son of David, who would be known as the Mighty God. Lord, at Your appointed time, You sent Your Son, Jesus, into the world in weakness, in a manger, He came into this world, Lord, and He accomplished the work that You gave Him to do, to to die on a cross on behalf of sinners. And now, Father, we have the luxury of looking back and seeing our salvation through Christ on the cross, but ultimately through the resurrection. And Lord, we now wait as Your people Israel waited for His promised coming again when He will bring in the fullness of His kingdom. Lord, I pray that this time together over this next month would be a season of rejoicing in the Gospel of Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we focus on who Jesus truly was this morning, that our faces would be unveiled and we would see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And I pray all of these things in His name. Amen. So today marks the beginning of a new series that will last for the four weeks of Advent. Last week we completed our study of 1 Timothy, and before excuse me, we begin our study going through the Gospel of John, 
which will come after this Advent series. We're going to take these four weeks to do a kind of mini-series focusing on the person and work of Christ. And there's a few reasons why I wanted to do this. Number one, because it is the season of Advent. Nothing too profound there. That is the season that we have entered into. And this is a season in which millions of Christians from around the world are meditating especially on the first coming of Christ in His incarnation and the implications of that coming as they also anticipate His second coming when He will bring in the fullness of the kingdom of God, only it will not be coming in the weakness of a child in a manger, but in power. In this season, we share in the joy that our brothers and sisters around the world have. We have fellowship with them in the hope of the Gospel of Christ. And so this season provides us a time of focused unity with the body of Christ from all over the world. Second, This Advent series will give us an opportunity to rejoice together in the core message of the Gospel. The title of this Advent series is, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, which is taken from one of the lines of the hymn, The Church's One Foundation by Samuel Stone. The full line is from heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. And I thought that that was an apt summary of the Gospel and really what Advent and Christmas is all about. So for each week, we're going to unpack each phrase of that line from that hymn. So this morning, we're going to focus on the phrase, from heaven. And what that tells us about the eternal existence and origin of Jesus. That He did not come into existence at His birth, but that He is in fact the One through whom all things have been made. Next week we'll be on the phrase, He came. Looking into the significance of the birth of Christ and the entrance of the eternal Son of God into the world in human flesh. God becoming man. And then the third week will be on the phrase, He sought her, examining the work of Christ in seeking out lost sinners to save and to reconcile to God. And then we will end with the purpose clause of that line, to be His holy bride. And on that week, we will anticipate the goal of our salvation, to be made perfectly into the image of Christ, to become spotless and sinless and perfect saints who can dwell in the presence of God without fear of judgment. Because we will be made new along with all things in the world. And so with all of these different phrases, and over the next few weeks, we will be reminded of these core truths of the Gospel. Which leads to the final reason for doing this series, and the one I think is the most important. My greatest desire in this 
Advent season and series is that it would be a time, a period of time, of fruitful sanctification in your life. Sanctification is the biblical word that describes our growth in holiness, our being made more and more in the image and likeness of Christ. And we grow in holiness in many ways. We grow in holiness by feeding on and meditating on the Word of God. We grow in holiness by doing good works. We grow in holiness as we fellowship with other believers in the body of Christ. But another way that we grow in holiness is not necessarily by doing something, but by beholding, by beholding Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul is talking there about the process we as Christians undergo as day by day, week after week, month after month, we are transformed and made new creatures in the image of Jesus. And he says that this takes place by the means of our beholding the glory of the Lord. By our fixing our gaze on the person of Jesus Christ. By looking and dwelling upon the beauty and splendor of the Savior of sinners. By looking, as it were, in a mirror. Only the reflection that we see is not our own, but is a reflection of what we will become when we gaze upon Him. John Newton said that it is by looking to Jesus, by looking to Him, that the believer is enlightened and strengthened and grows in grace and sanctification. That is what I hope that this season of Advent will be for you. A season of beholding Christ and having your hearts warmed by His glory and your minds filled with thoughts of His person and works so that as these things are happening, you are being transformed and your hearts are being made new into the image of Jesus. And so we begin this morning by looking at a passage of Scripture that should be very familiar to you. If at least not the contents of it, at least the section of Scripture that we are in. Most of your Bibles call John chapter 17 the high priestly prayer. And that's what at least most people are very familiar with of this chapter is the high priestly prayer of Jesus And we're looking at the first several verses of John 17 this morning, and the setting that we find ourselves in is the eve on which Jesus was betrayed. Jesus knows that the time of His crucifixion is imminent. 
And therefore the time that He will be with His disciples face to face teaching them about the glories of God and the kingdom of God, that time is rapidly coming to a close. The disciples don't yet fully understand this. Their understanding of Jesus' mission at this point is still deficient. They believed that the coming of the promised Messiah only meant the establishing of the universal kingdom of God that had been promised by the Old Testament prophets as well as the submission of all of the nations under the lordship of the King of Israel. What they had not fully understood, though, is that their own prophets had also prophesied that the Messiah, who was to be the King of Israel, would also suffer and die for the sins of His people. That part had by and large been left out. had been read over. This is is really nothing that we should condemn the disciples for. This is actually what we as Christians very often do as we read portions of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Things that we are blinded to, we often read over very quickly and miss very central truths of the Gospel. For the disciples, it really wasn't until after Jesus' death and resurrection in the 40 days that He spent with His disciples before He ascended into heaven that the disciples understood the full mission of Jesus. That He was sent into the world both to suffer and to conquer. So on this particular evening, Jesus is continuing to teach His disciples about what He is about to do. He is reminding them to be, uh, that to be His disciples, they must love one another as Jesus loved them. He's warning them and preparing them for the persecution and hatred of the world that is about to come upon them when He departs. If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you, He told them. He's also encouraging them and assuring them that it is actually better for them that He departs. That He is crucified and is eventually raised from the dead and ascends to heaven. This is better for them because once He departs, He will send to them the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will comfort them and guide them and remind them of the truths that they learned from Jesus and will also give them new revelation about the things that are to come. And because of this, they will teach and make other disciples with a divine authority that was uniquely given to them as apostles. And so after these final instructions, we come to John 17, verse 1, where we are told that after Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven. He began to pray. The Son of God began to pray. We ought not to understand or or, or underestimate 
the significance of this prayer here. And the significance of being able to hear a prayer of Jesus. Prayer is one of the most personal deeds a person can do. When we pray, our hearts are laid bare before the throne of God. Our sin is exposed. Our deepest longings and fears and anxieties and joys are expressed to the God who knows our frame already. There's a quote that's often attributed to Robert Murray McShane that is actually from the Puritan John Owen that says this, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. What makes this quote so full of penetrating truth is that we as sinful and prideful human beings need to be humbled and reminded that we are indeed nothing more than what we are before God on our knees. But here we have Jesus on His knees, in a sense, in prayer. And unlike a sinful man who needs to be humbled, it may be said of Jesus that what He is on His knees before God, that He is. And in this prayer, what we find Him to be What is revealed for the world to see is that this Jesus is utterly unique. There has never been one like this one. He is a son, but He's more than a son. He is a servant, but He is more than a servant. He is a man, but He's even more than a man. What we find in this prayer and what the Gospel of John is making indisputably clear is that Jesus is the pre-existent Son. He has existed eternally. There has never been a time when He was not. No other person ever predated Him. Nothing in creation is older than Him. The age of the oldest star in the universe is but a second in His sight. And there are a few reasons why we see that this is so. Why He is indeed the pre-existent Son of God from His prayer. The first concerns the authority that He was given from heaven. The authority that He was given from heaven. In verse 1 again, He says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Jesus knows that the purpose for which He came into the world, namely to bear the judgment of God on behalf of sinners, has come to its Fulfillment. The hour has come. The appointed day that all of history is leading up to has arrived. It is the determined plan of God for this event to take place. And notice, notice that this does not lead Jesus into a kind of 
hopeless fatalism. He doesn't have the mindset that the predetermination of a certain event to take place, namely the crucifixion, is an excuse for him to do nothing. Rather, it is precisely because his death has been predetermined to happen from before the creation itself, it is precisely because of this reason that Jesus begins to pray to the Father. It was determined that He be glorified in this way and therefore He prays for His glorification. Now this glory that He is praying for probably includes the notion of being recognized as supremely valuable and worthy of all honor among the world. But even more specifically, this glory describes the kind of glory that one has with a position of authority. The glory of a king or president is a glory of office. They have a certain glory because they rule over others. The glory of the sun is not simply a glory of radiance and brightness, but as Genesis chapter 1 teaches us as well, the glory of the sun is also a glory of authority as it rules over the day and the moon by night. And here when Jesus prays that the Father glorify Him, the glory that He is speaking of is the glory of authority. The crucifixion is on the horizon, fast approaching. But with the crucifixion comes the chief means by which Jesus will be shown to have authority over death itself when He is raised from the dead. And in His prayer, He compares this, He compares this glorification with the authority that He has been given already over all flesh. He says in verse 2, just as the ESV, if you're reading from the ESV or the Pew Bible, reads since, but the better reading is that this is a comparison that is taking place. So rather than since, just as, just as you have given Him authority over all flesh. So he is praying, Father, glorify your Son. Exalt me through the cross and resurrection over death itself. Give me authority over the greatest enemy in the world. Give me a manifest authority over this grave just as you have given me authority over all flesh. Now that first part of verse 2 is really important to see. He says, just as you have given Him authority over flesh, over all flesh. That's, That's past tense. You have given Him authority. In His prayer, Jesus is referring to an authority which has been granted to Him over all flesh 
in eternity past. Long before there was flesh. Before the world began. And we know that he's talking about an authority granted to him before the world even began because this whole passage that we are in is referring to realities that all existed before the world began. In verse 4, he had a work to accomplish that was given to him before the world began because he was sent into the world to accomplish this work. In verse 5, he had a glory in the presence of the Father that he says specifically was before the world began. Before it existed. So if, as Owen said, what a man is before God on his knees, that he is, then who we see Jesus is, is the pre-existent Son. And one of the reasons we see this is because of the authority that was given to him before anything existed. But another reason Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God, He has always been, is because of the mission He was given in heaven. Verses 3 and 4 says, And this is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. Again, notice how Jesus speaks of His being sent and accomplishing the work that the Father gave Him, past tense, to do. This can't be understood as some mission or work that was similar to that of other prophets. There wasn't a point in Jesus' life where God revealed Himself to Jesus through dreams and visions like He had done with the other prophets. John's Gospel makes it clear that when Jesus was sent and that when Jesus speaks of being sent, He means that He was sent from heaven into the world. In John 7.39, Jesus is explaining that He knows the Father intimately, personally, like no one else knows Him. And He says that it is because I am from Him. And He sent me. John 8.42, Jesus says to the Jews there, If God were your Father, you would love Me. For I have come from God and am now here. I came not of My own accord, but He sent Me. So the mission and work that Jesus was doing in the world was a mission that was planned and set into motion in heaven before the world began. It's what Paul is referring to when he writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7-10. to In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, 
which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. At the appointed time, at the fullness of time, that was when the mission of God was to be completed. Not any time sooner, not any time later, but exactly as He had designed it to be so. So we see that Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God, not only because of the authority that He has been given before the world began, but the, the, the mission that was set into motion as well. But lastly, and most obviously, we see that Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God because of His claim to have had glory in heaven before the world began. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. This glory here is a glory of splendor and beauty. This is the radiance of the sun kind of glory. This is the Mount Sinai fire and lightning and thunder and power kind of glory. And Jesus is saying in a prayer to the Father, with the shame and the weakness of the cross fast approaching, the humiliation of the cross fast approaching, Father, glorify Me with that glory again. The beauty, the splendor, the majesty. Clothe Me with the majesty of the Ancient of Days. Now friends, if it were not for the resurrection, this claim would have to be considered the claim of a madman. Of someone who is absolutely insane. There would be no room for you to admire Jesus. There would be no option for you to respect Him as some wise religious teacher if He wasn't really raised from the dead, this prayer is absurd on its face. To have claimed, to have shared in the glory of the living God, in the majesty of the living God before the world existed. If there's no resurrection, that's insane. But if as the Gospels and the early disciples testify, Jesus was in fact raised from the dead, then you have to respond to these claims. There's not an option to sit on the fence. The Gospel truths and the claims of Christ summon the world to either submit to the eternal Son of God with holy reverence or to reject Him as a madman. There's no in-between. 
And there's no room for indifference. Which leads to a point of application that I want to make from this passage. The doctrine of Jesus' pre-existence and His divinity is not meant to be unrelated to a life of discipleship. Rather, it should ground it and fuel it, especially when we consider the authority that Christ has as the eternal Son of God. His authority is for our life. Look again at verse 2. He says, glorify your Son just as you have given Him authority over all flesh. Well, what's the purpose of this authority? Why is it to be exercised? To give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And what is the defining characteristic of this eternal life? What makes it actually life and not death? He answers, knowing the true God, the only true God and Jesus Christ. Knowing Him gives you life. Why is it incredibly relevant to your life that Jesus is the eternal Son of God with the authority over all of creation and over all flesh? Why is this relevant whether you're a teacher or a truck driver or an accountant or whether or not you're retired? Why is it relevant that Jesus has this authority? Because He's the one who gives you life. And the one through whom and by whom you come to know God. That is perhaps the most relevant information you could ever hear in your life. Do you know God? Do you know God? I'm I'm asking you now to consider that question. Do I know God? Do I really know Him? When we speak of our friends, we say we know them. I know them. I know a lot about them. I have a relation with them. When we speak about our parents or our family or our spouse, we say we know them. Because we do. We have a relation with them. We speak to them regularly. We love them. We care for them. We would, many of us, probably die for them. We know them. Can you say that about God? Can you say, I know Him? Is He like a groom is to a bride for you? Or is He just a fling? Well, friends, I ask that question because if you're not sure, This is the problem that Jesus' eternally granted authority is meant to address. His authority is not just exercised as a sovereign king who sits on the throne and rules the world. Though that is an aspect of it. It's an authority 
that serves a greater purpose of making you to know God. It's an authority to grant life to the dead. It's an authority to come to a sinful and orphaned child as every sinner from birth is and to adopt them so that they come to know who their Father is. And they come to enjoy knowing Him as their Father. In Jesus' most intimate moment in the Gospels, perhaps, a prayer to His Father, you get to see His heart. You get to gaze into the heart of the living God. And what do you see when you look at that heart? What do you see there when you look at the heart of Christ? You don't see an unmerciful and vindictive God. And you don't see a God like many of the gods the pagans would have worshipped who looks upon humanity as a bug that simply needs to be swatted. You see here the heart of a God who will suffer Himself and who will shed blood and who will shed tears to give people who were the cause of that shed blood reconciliation and the ability to know Him and to enjoy Him and to experience through Him everlasting life. You see a God whose heart is aimed at their good and at your good. This is a God, friends, that you want to know. And this is a God whom if the problem that you have is whether or not I can say, I know God, He provides the way. And that way comes through Jesus, who is the Son of God and the Lamb of God, who entered into the world to pay the penalty for sinners that we might know Him and through Him, enjoy everlasting life. Would you pray with me? Father, Your Son is one like the world has never known. One who has authority to make the storms stop at His command. One who has the authority to make lepers clean. One who has authority to heal the sick with the word of His mouth. And one who has the authority who with that same word, the ability to raise the dead. And Father, You have given Your Son the authority to grant to all who would come to Him everlasting life. And so Lord, I pray that if there is a heart here that does not know You and has not been transformed by the transforming grace of God, the amazing grace, 
Lord, I pray that this morning would be the morning that the Son of God would become to them who He truly is, Lord and Savior of the lost. Father, help us in this specific season we are in to have minds and hearts that are ever gazed and fixed upon the glory of this Christ. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.